Well, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, I know a lot of you have been out traveling, doing all your summer vacation sort of stuff. Hope it's been fun. Uh, If you've been with us, if you've been paying attention, you'll know that Jamin actually preached on this exact same passage just a few weeks ago. Um, But as I was thinking about that, I realized that Jewish people of faith have said these verses, recited these verses two times every day for thousands of years. So I figured that it'd be okay for us to say them and look at them together two times in one month. Is that okay? Um, I hope so. It's, it's impossible for me to overstate just how significant and important these verses are for the Hebrew people. There's really nothing, I've really thought hard about this. I don't know that there's anything in our Christian tradition that I can compare it to that would help us see just how central it is to the mind and heart and life of a Hebrew person. Just like I said, they would take verse seven of Deuteronomy six very literally, where it says, talk about these words, talk about them when you lie down and when you get up. And they would, they would recite these verses every morning and every evening. The Talmud is, outside of the Hebrew scriptures, the most important piece of the Hebrew faith for the life and practice of a Jewish person. Guess what happens? Guess what shows up on page number one? The very first words of the Talmud. These, these verses, which in Hebrew are called the Shema. The Shema. It was Jewish tradition, actually, that as soon as your toddler or your small child began to speak, these would be the words that you would teach him or her. So it's kind of crazy to think about that, like these are probably some of the very first words that that Jesus spoke. When Jesus was just two or three years old, these would be the words that he would speak. Jesus throughout his life would have spoken and recited these words at least two times every day throughout his entire life. So it's really no surprise that in the gospels, we see all these stories about religious leaders approaching Jesus. And there are these accounts of them asking Jesus, hey, what's, what Jesus is the most important commandment? What do you have to say to us? So it's no surprise that Jesus says this in Mark chapter 12 and in all the gospels, he says, the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, sound familiar? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and all of your mind and with all your strength. And then of course, Jesus adds, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So it's clear. And what I want you to see, it's just impossible to miss that for the people of God in the Old Testament, And for Jesus himself and for followers of Jesus, this is the most important thing. This is it. This is is the central. This is the core. This is the essential. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And so if that line of reasoning, as I'm thinking through this, if that's correct, then I think the most important question that we can ask this morning and this sounds like a bold hyperbole. I think it's true. Maybe the most important question you can ask in your life is what does it mean to cultivate a love for God? What does it mean to love God with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength? What, what does that even look like? 
And how do I go about being faithful to the verses that we see here? The central part of our faith. So I think the verses themselves, especially two verses, um, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four and five, just these two verses, I think they have a lot of clues to help us kind of unpack and wrestle with this question this morning. So I want to unpack these verses for a few minutes, and then I want to just share with you really, really practically some practices that I found helpful in my own life in cultivating love for God. So let's look really closely at these couple verses. If you still have your Bible open, it'd be helpful for you to have the words in front of you. Um, so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, I wish there have been literally thousands and thousands, maybe millions of pages written about these two verses. So I wish, I wish we just had hours and hours and a whole weekend to unpack this, but we just have a few minutes. So I'm, I'm just going to point out two things in these couple verses. Specifically, there are, in, in Hebrew, there are only two verbs in these two verses. Do, any, do y'all like grammar? I really like grammar. So don't let me lose you here if you don't, if you're like one of the normal people who doesn't care for grammar. Um, there are two verbs in these two verses, hear and love. In verse four, hear, shema, and then in verse five, love, ahava in Hebrew. Now in English, in most translations, not all English translations, but in most English translations, there are three verbs. Uh, the Lord is one, but in Hebrew, there are only two. Shema, here, and love, ahava. So let's unpack that just a little. Let's look at each of these, these verbs. So first, shema. Um, shema in Hebrew, which is the first word in these two verses, hear, hear, O Israel. Usually it just means quite simply, if you can read Hebrew, there it is for you. Um, Matt Davis may be the only one. Uh, most of the time, shema, shema shows up, as you would imagine, all over the place in the Hebrew scriptures. And most of the time, it, it just really simply means hear. Like here's an example in Proverbs chapter 20, ears that shema, ears that hear, and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. So it just really quite simply means hear. But it can also mean in certain places, on certain occasions, more than hear, more than just like ears that shema. It can, like it can have some, some force to it, some, some weight to it, some gravity. It can mean like hear, exclamation point. Listen to this, pay attention, focus on what I'm about to tell you. In fact, in this account in Deuteronomy, the people are about to go into the land that God had promised them. And these are like some of the last words that Moses spoke to uh, the Israelite people. So it's like, listen, lean in. You need to hear what I have to say to you here. Shema, pay attention. Don't miss this. So don't miss what? What are we to focus on? What are we to listen to? What are we hearing? The very next thing, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord our God. These four words in English, two words in Hebrew, are so important, so significant. This exact, uh, these exact two words in Hebrew, Yahweh Eloheinu, show up 91 times throughout the Hebrew scripture in this exact way. The Lord, our God. So important. I don't want you to miss this. Neither does Moses. Shema, listen, pay attention. The Lord, our God. 
This pattern shows up all over the place and it's really, really important. So let's just break it down for a minute. It sounds a little bit redundant, right? The Lord, our God, the Lord, there's like, it seems just a little bit redundant on the surface. This pattern is super intentional and super important. And there are two parts. Do you see? Part one, the Lord, Yahweh. Or if we were Jewish people, we would never say that. We would say Adonai, the Lord. And then the second part, our God. Let me just show you the beauty behind these these words for just a second. So the word Yahweh is God's personal name that he used to introduce himself to Moses in the burning bush scene. Do you remember that scene? Like even if you haven't been around church much, you you may have seen it uh, in the movie, The Prince of Egypt, or maybe on little flannel graphs as you were growing up in Sunday school, the burning bush scene in Exodus chapter three. When, uh, when God is interacting with Moses and telling him, hey, I want you to go to Egypt and I'm gonna use you to rescue my people from oppression and slavery in Egypt. And Moses is like, who are you? <laughs> and, and when I go to them and tell, tell them about you, like, how should I introduce you? And so God uses this word to introduce himself. And there's, there's really no way to wrap our mind around it. It's, it's super mysterious and really hard for us to grasp or understand. Um, the way we talk about it in English is it just means quite simply, I am who I am, the Lord, Yahweh. Anytime you see in your Bible, the word Lord, and it's written in all caps, this word is, this Hebrew word is behind that English word. And what it emphasizes is God's divinity. I am who I am. I have no beginning and I have no end. I'm divine. I am the one who simply is. Like we can't even begin to comprehend or wrap our minds around that. The bigness of God, the majesty of God, the might of God, the infinitude of God. I am who I am. Yahweh, transcendent. And if we talk about this long enough, you're gonna get this feeling like inside of you that like God is so out there and so mysterious and so big that I, like I, what, I don't even know what to do. He's so out there that how can he ever be in here? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like he's so big, it's just it's this idea that's too big for us to comprehend the divine the majestic one, Yahweh, the Lord. But he's not only Yahweh. All over the place in the Old Testament, he is the Lord, our God. The Lord, our God, Eloheinu. Yes, he's out there and he's infinite and he has no beginning and no end. He's eternal. He's beyond what we can comprehend, but he's also here. He's also near He's close. He's not just this distant idea or distant being, but he's our God. He's personal. He cares about you. And that's the very first thing that you have to see if you want to cultivate this love for God is that there is this divine, majestic, infinite being, Yahweh, but that he's also personal and he cares deeply for you. Can you say at your core, like the psalmist, 
in this familiar Psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He refreshes my soul. Do you see there's that pattern again? The Lord, Yahweh, in slightly different words, but he's my shepherd. He walks with me. He knows me. He sees me. He's tender. He's personal. He loves me. So I just want you to see this morning, and Moses and and God wants you to see, the Lord your God, Adonai Eloheinu, He loves you, he knows you, he cares about you. Shema, hear, look at this God. And then second, the word love, the verb ahava. Ahava. This verb is is familiar to us, love. Let me just, like, let's dig a little bit and just, be explicit about some things that we all know implicitly, like some things that we know intuitively about this, this verb love. Ahava is another word that's it's really common in the Old Testament. Shows up all over the place. Abraham loved his son Isaac, Ahava. Jonathan showed brotherly love to his best friend David, Ahava. The whole community of Israel, all of God's people loved David, Ahava. Shows up all over the place. But what you'll see in that pattern is is something important that I want us to see together. Love always comes from a source and then it's always aimed at something. Okay, are you with me? Love always has a source. Abraham loved his son, Isaac, and always is pointed. It's always aimed at something. Jonathan loved his best friend, David. The people of Israel loved their king, David. So here's the crucial question for you that I want you to ask yourself and I want you to wrestle with this morning. What is it that your love is aimed at? What is it that you're going after? Who or what do you love? You can consider, you can assess what you love by taking an inventory of your life, by taking a sort of like heart audit, okay? Do any of you like accounting? A couple of you. My wife is a CPA. So most of us, most of us not only don't get excited about the word audit, but like we feel a little bit afraid. Don't say that. But I want you to take a heart audit this morning. I want you to do an inventory of your life to figure out, to assess what it is or who it is that you love. And here's how you can do that. It's, it's really simple, but if you really go there, it's gonna be painful and hard. How is it that you spend your time? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your resources, your money, the things that you have? Look at your calendar and see what your calendar is filled up with. Look at your email. Better yet, look at your, um, look at your Facebook feed like targeted marketing, like really shows you what you love. It'll show you what you've been Googling. It might even show you if you buy into this conspiracy, it'll even show you what you've been talking about, right? Does anybody, 
Like there's this conspiracy that I think is true. I have some instances in my life that are kind of eerie and weird where like Facebook is listening in on our phones and you may not even Google something, but like they're going to target advertising towards you based on just things you've been talking about. How creepy is that? So look at your Facebook feed and do a heart audit. This is a different way to use Facebook that I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg has ever, ever encapsulated yet. You can do a heart audit. You can see what it is that you love, what you're going after. And here's the deal. As you do a heart audit, you can be passive about what you find. Like you can just go through life and just have your love aimed at different things and just kind of wander and meander and make your way through life. Or you can be active about it and you can be assertive. And here's what you'll find. Um, you can actually, this, this, is, this is really good, but it's going to be, it's hard for my mind to like begin to wrap itself around this. So let's just stay together for a second. You can actually begin to like re-aim your loves. So as you do a hard audit and you're like, man, it seems like the things that I love that I'm going for, the ways I'm spending my time and my money and my resources, the things that I'm talking about that my iPhone's microphone is picking up, like those aren't things that are gonna be life-giving. Love the Lord your God. Like, I don't know if it's the Lord my God that I'm loving and I'm going after. You can, over time, re-aim your love, and it happens by looking at your practices. So we're all familiar with this concept of practice. Like, you practice something, and you get good at it, and it just becomes second nature. Let me give you a couple examples. First of all, Think about a keyboard on your computer. What letters are right next to the letter C? Done. You don't know, right? Right? But if I tell you to type Christ City Church, most of you in the room could do it in less than two seconds. The reason is, is because you've practiced. And even though you don't think about practicing typing, you're practicing all the time so that your practice eventually becomes a habit and it's so in you that you don't even have to think about it. It just happens. Here's another story, another example. Um, on January 15th, 2009, there was this amazing story that captured all of us. You probably remember the story of US Airways Flight 1549 with Captain Chelsea Sullenberger. Do you remember the story? It's now been made into a movie uh, called Sully with Tom Hanks. And it's a story of uh, this airplane in New York City that ran into a flock of geese. Do you remember this story? And both engines were shut down. And Sully, Captain Sullenberger, had 208 seconds to make a million life or death decisions that ultimately led him to safely landing the plane on the Hudson River, and all 150-plus people on board were safe. 208 seconds, just over three minutes, and a million snap-second decisions that were life-or-death decisions. But Sully was able to do it because he had spent years and years and years practicing 
so that those practices became habits, so that when it really counted, he was able to land this plane safely under the most extreme circumstances. This is what Sully said as he's reflecting on this idea. He said, one way of looking at this might be that for 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits in this bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15th, the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. So skills in your life, typing, or if any of you can fly airplanes, you develop those skills through tons and tons and tons of practice. They become habits. They become just these skills that are inside of you that you don't even have to think about. And the same is true for aiming your loved on a much deeper level. So let me show you a picture. I love this idea, this concept. The idea that your practices can over time, as you practice, as you're committed, as you're devoted, begin to shape habits of your heart. And over time, you can find your loves re-aimed. And you can begin, begin to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Habits, or practices rather, practices inform your habits of heart. They can shape what, what it is that you love. So considering this, this question, how can I cultivate love for God? What does it mean to cultivate love for God? I want to invite you into one practice that I have found um, unbelievably helpful. And it's not just me. It's this ancient practice that God's people have been participating in uh, literally for thousands of years. So I want to invite you to consider this practice with me and what it might look like for you to even embody this in your own life and see your habits formed and your love pointed and aimed towards God. So throughout the ages, God's people have actually prayed, have communed with God, oftentimes through reading like written prayers and reading Psalms and reading scripture. They've, they've prayed and communed with God at fixed times throughout the day. So it, it shows up in the Old Testament. You've probably seen this before and your eyes just kind of go, go by and you might not even think about it. But in Daniel, you remember the story of Daniel in Daniel 6, verse 10, we get a glimpse into Daniel's life and into his own practices. And we see Daniel kneeling three times a day to pray. And it wasn't just Daniel, but Daniel was being a faithful Jewish person following after Yahweh. It's all over the place in the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 119, verse 164, the psalmist writes, seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous laws. Seven times a day, very intentional, fixed hours of prayer. In Psalm 55, just one more example, uh, we see the psalmist praying every evening, every morning, and every day at noon. So this idea of fixed hours, divine hours of prayer. So we shouldn't be surprised that because Christianity like sprung out of Judaism, right? We shouldn't be surprised that the earliest Christians who were Jewish men and women picked up these practices in their own lives 
And as they followed after the resurrected Lord, they embodied these fixed hours of prayer. In fact, for those of them who lived in Rome, um, bells actually rang out throughout the city at certain times during the day, announcing different parts of the workday. So whether you liked it or not, we may not like this in 21st century United States, but at 6 a.m., bells would ring out announcing that the workday was beginning. And then at 9 a.m., more bells would ring out, announcing that it was time for a morning break. And then at noon, bells would ring out, announcing that it's time for, uh, time for lunch and for an afternoon break, afternoon respite. At 3 p.m., bells would ring out once more and announce, hey, it's time to get back to work. Afternoon break's over. And then finally at 6 p.m., bells would ring out, announcing that the workday has ended. And so followers of Jesus who were in Rome, who had these Jewish roots, begin to pray around these different points of the day and read Psalms together. They'd get together and read scripture together and read prayers together. This was actually formalized, um, especially for Christian clergy and monks and nuns by the fourth century, especially by a guy named St. Benedict. And uh, so you probably haven't, but if you ever have visited a monastery, uh, if you haven't, you should consider it because it could be awesome. If you ever visit a monastery, you'll see, you'll witness, and you'll even be able to take part in this practice. So monks for hundreds of years and nuns for hundreds of years have prayed the divine hours, and it became known as the daily office, the daily office. So if you visit a monastery, again, we may not like this very much, but this is just what they do. They gather together for prayer at midnight and then they sleep for a little bit. They gather again at 3 a.m. And then they sleep for a little bit. The only people who do this are parents of very small children. Maybe <laughs> as you're up rocking your baby back to sleep, you're saying your prayers. Please, Lord. Um, 3 a.m., they wake up again, say prayers together. And then again at 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. and noon and 3 p.m., and 6 p.m., and 9 p.m., all these fixed points throughout the day. So what happened is, as you can imagine, this sounds a little inaccessible, right? I don't know about for you, but I look at that, and I'm just like, nah, like, I need my sleep. I can't wake up at 3 a.m. I can't wake up at midnight. Like, that's my best time of sleep right there. Like, it's just inaccessible. Like, only monks and only nuns can participate in this, right? And so in the 16th century, the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, a guy named Thomas Cranmer, he had this heart, he had this vision for all of the people in England to be able to participate once again in the daily office and be able to build this like paced, intentional relationship with the Lord, walking with God in prayer throughout their days. And so Thomas Cranmer crafted this amazing and beautiful book that I've heard is the most influential book on the English language other than the King James Bible. Um, Thomas Cranmer put together the Book of Common Prayer in 1549. And the Book of Common Prayer is just filled with prayers for our gathered worship, but it's also filled with prayers for you as you commune with God throughout your days. So about a year and a half ago, um, I had heard about the Book of Common Prayer, but I had never interacted with it myself, so I picked it up. 
kind of stumbled into finding a book of common prayer. And for a little while, I just kind of fumbled around. It's, it can be a little cumbersome. Like there are a lot of words in this, in this small book. But I tried to just figure out like, what does this rhythm of daily prayer look like? Like it's something that women and men, people of faith, people of God have practiced for thousands of years. So maybe there's something there for me. And what I've found is this new richness to my prayer life and to my devotion to God that I had never experienced before. So maybe you're like me, and for years, I did this thing that uh, in modern evangelicalism, we call the quiet time. Anybody? QT? You done your quiet time today? Um, and quiet time, like that, that concept of, hey, I'm going to wake up, or before I go to bed, whatever works, and I'm just going to spend a few minutes reading scripture. I'm going to spend a few minutes praying. That's awesome. Quiet time, like if, if you're doing that and you're spending regular time with God through this kind of practice of a quiet time, like go for it. That's really, really great. For me personally, quiet time could often feel like a duty, like something I had to just check off my list. And it often felt directionless, right? Like there's not a lot of direction here. And so there wasn't a lot of warmth or depth. There wasn't a lot of stirring in my heart, love for God, which is what the Shema is about. Love the Lord, your God. There wasn't a lot of that stirring in my soul. But when I picked up the daily office in a way that I, it's, it's kind of hard for me to explain because it sounds like just another duty like just another thing I'm supposed to do. But what I found for me personally is it wasn't just something I was doing, but it actually opened me up to a new way of being where I was committed to spending these regular times with God throughout my day. Just short prayers at fixed times. And sometimes if I didn't have the prayers in myself, like I can just read prayers, which is really helpful sometimes. And so I found myself like, walking with this new pace in life, like this slower, more intentional pace. And this, like, let me just be honest, this is not 100% of the time, but I've experienced this more in the past year and a half than I ever have as I've been a follower of Jesus. Like this new pace that's counterformational to the pace that we experience out in our culture, this fast-paced, like we just got to do stuff and do stuff and make stuff happen and achieve and perform. Like I experienced this new pace of just walking with God. I experienced the reality that I don't have to like coax God to be with me. I don't have to beg for him. I don't have to earn his love. Instead, I was just through these times made more aware of God's presence that's already with me. I was made more aware like God already loves you. God delights in you. He has affection that's just spilling over for you. Like in your devotional practices, you don't have to earn God's presence. You don't have to earn God's love. Devotional practices help you be aware that God is already present with you. God already loves you. I want to show you this other little book. I love this. This is, maybe it's just me. Um, this other little book I found a few weeks ago. Um, 
The daily office in the Book of Common Prayer can be, like I said, it can be pretty cumbersome. There are a lot of words. There are a lot of directions. Like, I don't quite know what to do here. I found this little book uh, that was produced by a church in Dallas. It's called Pray Daily. And it's taking the Book of Common Prayer's rhythm of morning prayer and evening prayer and making it accessible to like the normal person who works a normal job, who might have a family or roommates, who stays pretty busy. And so you can see every day there's just a short prayer for the morning. Whenever you're kind of getting started in your day, you can, you can read these prayers. You can say your own prayers in like three minutes. There's space, like if you have more time and you want to commune with God, like there's space for that. And then again at noon, and sometimes I'll set alarms on my watch. So my watch will vibrate or buzz at noon and will remind me to, to do the noon prayer. And then again in the evening, and the evening prayer may be something, especially if you have a family or if you have roommates who are followers of Jesus, maybe you could, you could pray those words together as you're sitting down at the dinner table. And then there's a prayer for when you're going to bed. Historically, it's called, traditionally, it's called Compline, when the day is complete. If you're married, you can say the Compline prayer with your spouse. And so I want to invite you guys to consider just wading into these waters and seeing what it might be like for you. There are some other resources I want to put in your hands. Like we want to make this I have such a passion. I I want to see you guys like this love for God cultivated and formed in your hearts. And so we want to make it as easy as possible. So there's another resource we're we're creating. Um, You may have seen there are these little prayer cards that we're making available for you. Uh, This prayer card has written um, the well-known historic prayer of St. Francis, just beautiful words that you can pray throughout your day. Throughout the fall, we're going to be producing some different cards you can pick up. And so I I just, we have tons of these cards, so you can grab as many as you want. They're at the connect table, they're at the resource table in the back, and you can use them as bookmarks. I have one in my car, I have one in my wallet, so every time I open up my wallet, I'm reminded to pray. Sometimes I say these words, sometimes I don't. It's just that reminder, right? So grab some of these. Consider purchasing from the book table this this resource, Pray Daily. And then one last resource I'll recommend to you. We're We're gonna try out some of these practices together throughout the fall. We've created a space for that. In this building, in this room, it's called Evensong. And many of you, we've done this a couple of times in the past, but we're gonna make it a regular rhythm so that we can practice some of these things together. Um, The daily office is not necessarily meant to be prayed alone, you can pray it alone, but like even as you pray it alone, you can think like, man, there are Christians, there are followers of Jesus all around the world, like in Latin America and in Africa and throughout Asia and in Europe, all around the world, there are Christians, there are followers of Jesus praying these prayers with me at this moment. And so we're gonna embody that and the first Wednesday of every month uh, at 6.30, it's in your bulletin. So just look in your bulletin. At 6.30, so it's this Wednesday. This Wednesday is the first Wednesday of August. It's crazy. August is here. And so five times throughout this semester, the first Wednesday of every month, we're gonna have space in here where we can come together and pray together, and have moments of silence and read prayers together, read scripture together and worship and sing. 
be really beautiful times that I hope you'll participate in. I hope to see many of you this Wednesday. So here's my prayer for us as we close, as we come to the table to participate in communion. My prayer is that we would be a church that cultivates spirituality. It cultivates this deep devotion for God, this love for God. That as we come to the table this morning, we could feel less lonely knowing that God is here. He's present with us. And there's no better picture of that than coming to communion, knowing that God loves us, seeing and like experiencing as we take bread and dip it in wine or juice, the extent, the depths of God's great love for you in Christ Jesus. So that's my prayer for us as we come to communion now and as we walk through this fall semester as a church family. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these words that are so central to our following Jesus, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. I pray that we would be a people, that we would be a church that cultivates deep love for you, God. And as we come to communion now, I pray that we would meet you, that we would be aware of and attentive to your presence with us. And it would be a very sweet and worshipful experience. In Christ's name we pray, amen.